We were noticing last Lord's Day what the Lord has to say about the disobedient servant. Jonah is seen here in rebellion. It was, as I pointed out, a conscious rebellion. It was willful. It was deliberate. He knew what he was doing. The word of the Lord was clear to him, but he didn't want to go God's way, and he rebelled against it. And there are lessons that we learned about the call of God in relation to Jonah. Uh, Just generally, we spoke about the fact that the call of God is personal. Here was a word that came unto Jonah, no one else. It was for him. This was the Lord's word directly to his servant. It was a plain word, arise and go to Nineveh. He was left in no doubt as to what he was to do and where he was to go, what he was to do when he was there, cry against it. He was sent to plainly preach God's word to that wicked city. And so it was a particular call, go to Nineveh. There is a place of service. And Jonah had that pointed out to him. The Lord wanted him in that particular place. God always has a place for you to serve him. And yet the man of God rebelled. He did not go astray merely through ignorance, but through willful rebellion. And that indicates to me that at this point in his life, Jonah was a backslider, because the backslider in the heart is filled with his own ways. It was not only a conscious rebellion on his part, it was a convenient rebellion. And we made certain points about the circumstances that were quite favorable to his disobedience at the first. He wanted to go in the opposite direction from Nineveh. So when he went down to the harbor, there was a boat going there to Joppa in the opposite direction. The boat was going there. There was room on board. He had the fare uh, to pay for his board. And he was able to get on and go with them onto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It looked like everything was working out for Jonah. He wanted to go the furthest point possible in the opposite direction from Nineveh, and it looked like it was happening for him. But of course, the circumstances, while they may have been convenient to facilitate his rebellion, this was not what he should have been looking at. Verse 1 was plain, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. So it didn't matter what Jonah felt. It didn't matter what circumstances were. The word of the Lord was what it was. And we always have to be careful that we're not guided in our lives by circumstances alone. It is true that God works in circumstances, but we better not be thinking that circumstances on their own will determine God's will for us, because they don't. Sometimes the circumstances are convenient for you to do the wrong thing. But then as well as the rebellion of the servant, we talked about the roughness of the storm. When Jonah started getting away from God's will, the Lord sent a big storm into his life. That can happen to the Christian. It was no ordinary storm. It was a supernatural storm. It actually says it here, verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. This is something that God did. A storm rose in the life of this backslider. And we made the point that when people get away from God, 
the Lord will eventually take a dealing with them. And Jonah found that to be the case. We notice then the repose of the sinful. There he is, sleeping, verse 5. At the bottom of the verse, at the end of the verse, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. He seems to be content in his backsliding for a time. It can be like that. We can be content, as it were, out of the will of God for a time until the Lord begins to tighten the net around us. And something I said last time that's really important for us to note, and that is that we should never conclude that a person was never saved just because for a time they seem to be content in a backslidden condition. It can happen. And time will tell whether people are really the Lord's or not. We then talk about the rebuke of the slothful. In verse 6, the captain of the ship, the shipmaster, came to Jonah. He was a heathen man, but he was able to rebuke God's servant for not caring for those who were in mortal danger. Jonah was sleeping while these men were praying to their false gods. And the truth is that believers can be asleep while the world around is in great danger of perishing. And it's a very, very sad thing when a heathen person has to rebuke a believer. You know, sometimes the ungodly know the standards that Christians should keep better than Christians do. And oftentimes they'll point it out to you if they see that you're not consistent with what they believe to be a Christian testimony. We think of our loved ones, our friends, our neighbours, co-workers, associates, and so on. And imagine them saying to us, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Let us not be slothful, but let us be supplicating on behalf of those that are lost. I want to go on from there to look at some more detail in this passage. As we go on in Jonah chapter 1, we find that there is in verse 7 down to verse 11, there are a number of requests there. I call them the requests of the sailors. Let's read these verses again. Verse 7, And they said, Everyone to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. And then they asked them a number of questions. They made a number of requests to Jonah. Now let's look at what happened here. There was a casting of lots. Uh, people today sometimes if they're going to decide what they're going to do, they'll draw straws. And you can draw the short straw and you're the one that uh, has to do whatever it is that's unpopular or not really something that everybody else wants to do. Well, in those days they would draw lots, they would cast lots. That was a, a, a common way of determining what should be done in certain cases. And it says here that the lot fell upon Jonah. That was just his bad luck, right? No, nothing to do with luck. 
Because this was in the providence of God that the lot fell upon Jonah. We're told in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 16 to be exact, and in verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. In other words, the result of the casting of lots, God is providentially in control of that. And so it was here. So the lot fell upon Jonah. Then you find that there were six questions directed to the man of God. You find those from verse 8 to verse 11. This was a series of inquiries that would search Jonah's heart and would convict him of his sin. Now, I always think that it's interesting how the world is able to unmask and to smoke out a backslider. But look at his profession in verse 9. They asked him these questions. For whose cause has this evil come upon us? Why is this happening? What's your occupation? Where did you come from? What's your country? What is your people? And he said unto them, verse 9, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Unlike some people, Jonah believed in creation. He was a creationist. He didn't believe in evolution. He didn't even believe in theistic evolution. He believed that God was the creator. The God of heaven, he said, Jehovah, which hath made the sea and the dry land. He said, that's who I fear. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Isn't it interesting that he would say that? And yet it really didn't fit in with what he was doing at that moment. Because if he'd gone on to speak more of the truth, he would have told these men, I shouldn't be here, I should be in Nineveh. I should be serving the Lord who I profess to fear. God told me to go to a certain place and to preach, and I'm not doing that, and that's why I'm in trouble right now. But that's not what he said. He just said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. That was his profession. But it didn't fit with what he was doing. And how many there are in the world today who say, when you ask them the question, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a believer. And then you look at their lives. And you look at the things that they're doing and the places that they go and the way that they behave. And you think to yourself, how are these people Christians? How many people in the day in which we live, are actually, in a sense, living a lie. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, but the way I'm living is totally in opposition to the teaching of his word. Now in verse 10, there's a request that we could address to any backslidden Christian. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, when they heard that, that he was a man who feared Jehovah, it made them even more scared than they already were. Because it tells us in verse 5 that they were already afraid. They were afraid because of the storm, but now they're not afraid just of the storm. They're afraid of this, that Jonah is a servant of God, 
And now he's in a situation where he's opposing God's will. And it says that those men were exceedingly afraid. That means they were really, really frightened. And said unto him, Why hast thou done this? It's a good question, isn't it? Why hast thou done this? Couldn't we address that to people who once walked well with God and now they're not walking with God? Why hast thou done this? Why are you living the way you're living? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Now obviously, the answer is going to vary according to the individual circumstances of backsliders. But when you ask anybody who is not walking with God how it is and why it is that they've gotten away from God, they'll usually find some lame and feeble excuse. They like to blame other Christians or they like to blame the pastor it's the pastor's fault or it's some other Christian in the congregation it's their fault or it's some other hypocrite that they've come across it's never themselves it's always somebody else's fault but in Jonah's case when they asked him the question why hast thou done this we're not getting any answer coming back. He doesn't seem to say anything in response to that. Because you see, the real reason for Jonah's disobedience is found later on in the book of Jonah. Go to chapter 4 and the first two verses. This is in the aftermath of his preaching to the Ninevites and the Ninevites repenting and coming to the Lord, turning from their sins and God having mercy upon them. Here's what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. Now we're getting to the reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Tarshish. Didn't want to go to Nineveh, but wanted to go to Tarshish instead. He said, Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Here's the reason for Jonah's disobedience. Here's the reason why he got out of the will of God and didn't want to go and preach in Nineveh. Nineveh was part of the Assyrian kingdom. The Assyrians, of whom you read in the Old Testament, were sworn enemies of the Jews. They did all manner of terrible things to the Jewish people. You can read about it as the Jews were taken into captivity by the Assyrians and some of the things that they did have been written by secular historians. They were evil, wicked people. And frankly, Jonah didn't want them to be saved. That was it. He did not want them to be saved. You see, God told Jonah, he asked Jonah to do what no other prophet in Jewish history had been asked to do. To go to a Gentile heathen city, Nineveh, and preach to them. Jonah was asked to do something 
that was totally diametrically opposed to his natural inclinations as a Jew. The only thing I can think of that even comes close to that in my own life's experience would be like asking a hot-blooded Ulster Protestant like myself to go to an area that was ruled over by Sinn Féin, by those who hate us, who have butchered and maimed and killed our people for decades and preach the gospel to them. That's what it would be like. It would be like an Ulster Protestant being asked to go to a town in the Republic of Ireland like Limerick and evangelize. Or it would be like a patriotic American being asked to go to an area that was ruled over by Osama bin Laden and witness to his men who were trying their best to kill American soldiers and, and, and people. You think about how you would feel about that. It went totally against the grain with Jonah. And it was because of this he admitted it himself in chapter 4 he disobeyed the Lord. But here's the thing. There is no excuse for disobedience. There's no excuse. No one, but no one can excuse backsliding and rebellion against God's will in any way, shape or form. It is to be condemned. No matter how hard the task might seem for anyone to carry out. If the Lord calls you to do it, that's what you're to do. And I thought about this once when I was in the airport in Belfast, standing right behind Jerry Adams. I mean right behind him. I remember thinking that day, if I had the opportunity, what would I say to him? I know what I would love to have said to him. I know what I would have loved to have done to him. But I found that day within my heart there was a desire, as God is my witness, to reach that man's soul. But the sad fact is that backsliders get deeper and deeper into trouble the longer they stay away from God and His will. And we learn this from verse 11 of Jonah chapter 1. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous? If you look at the margin of this in your authorized version, it says, the Hebrew alternate rendering, may be silent from us, or grew more and more tempestuous. It got worse and worse. The storm was increasing in strength. The sea was becoming more and more angry. The situation was getting worse all the time. The longer that Jonah was where he ought not to be, the worse the situation was becoming. So that's something that we learn from this portion. When you get away from the Lord, the trouble that comes upon your life sometimes gets worse and worse before it ever gets better. Another thing that we learn is that those who associate with the backslidden 
will often suffer along with them as a consequence of their sins. Look at the fact that the sailors, according to verse 5, lost valuable cargo because of Jonah. It tells us that they cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. They had to throw a lot of their stuff overboard. Things that belonged to them. Things that they were involved in transporting for business purposes, for example. Valuable cargo. They lost all of that because of Jonah. They almost lost the ship because of Jonah. And they almost lost their own lives because of Jonah. It was all his fault. And I don't think I'm wrong in saying that you shouldn't think that when you get away from the Lord, that the only person affected by that will be yourself. Because that's not true. No man is an island. Everybody has associations with other people. And your testimony affects other people. Those that you know, those that you love, are affected by what you do, as well as you being affected yourself. Your family, your friends, other believers. And the name of the Lord itself is reproached when you get away from the Lord. Notice what it says in Romans 14, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I could be a stumbling block to some other person by my behavior, by the things that I do. Again, the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 15 says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Isn't that interesting? A root of bitterness in one person's heart, but it causes many to be defiled. Many other people are affected by it. So it was with Jonah. So here we have the requests of the sailors. But we also have in response to this, the reply of the saint. Notice what Jonah says in response to what these men asked. All these questions. And he gives this answer in verse 12. He said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Jonah's reply shows us that he recognized his own carnal heart. He came to see the problem with himself. I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. It's my fault. It's my fault alone. And I am owning up to that. And this is a really hopeful sign because this is the beginning of repentance. When a person recognizes the fact of his own sin, he's on the way back. On the way back, that is, to the Lord. The backslider who has never yet repented will blame not himself, but something or someone else. 
for his condition. It will never be his fault. It's always somebody else. But a person who's ready to be restored to the Lord has the attitude which says, it's my own fault. The problem is with me. And we learn this from the psalmist. There are some beautiful statements made by the psalmist in terms of his own repentance when he was coming back to the Lord from times of sinfulness. For example, in Psalm 32 and in verse 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgivest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. He acknowledged his sin. Didn't try to hide it. Didn't try to make excuses for it. He acknowledged that it was the case. And again, Psalm 51 uh, teaches the same thing. When David sinned with Bathsheba, the Lord smote him. He, He was convicted. And he came back to the Lord. He wrote this psalm of repentance. And he says some great things there, including verses 3 and 4. Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. I know that I've sinned. And Jonah came to that place. He had a carnal and a sinful heart. And he recognized it. For my sake, this evil has come upon you. Not only did he, in his reply, recognize his own carnal heart, but he also very significantly recognized the Lord's chastening hand. He sees the hand of the Lord at work in the situation. See, Jonah knew this was no ordinary storm. This was no natural phenomenon. This was not an accident. This was not something happened by chance. This wasn't bad luck that a tempest was raging. This was the hand of God. He knew that. He knew that the Lord was working. And this is shown by the fact that he realized that if he got off the ship, God would calm the sea right down. And he was absolutely correct. Look at verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Just like he said. It can be the case that disobedient believers are not willing to admit that the tempests in their lives are the chastisement of God. It's it's a hard thing for our pride to swallow that. Maybe the hand of the Lord is against us. Maybe the Lord is taking a dealing with us. We don't want to admit that sometimes. And yet it may well be the case. Now I don't believe at all that every negative thing or every bad thing that happens in the life of a believer is chastisement. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe it's because of your sin, for example, that you have an illness Or that something happens in your life in terms of a bereavement or some tragedy or an illness. There are those, especially in Pentecostal circles, who are full of superstition. And that's how they operate. And that's how their preachers put people on guilt trips. Because they'll tell you that bad stuff's going to happen in your life. 
So you better come to this church, and you better be faithful here, and you better do all the things that are right. Especially do what I tell you to do. Otherwise bad stuff will happen to you. And if you ever leave this church and go to some other church, bad stuff will really happen to you. That's what folks are sometimes told. So it doesn't mean at all that everything that happens in your life that's of a negative nature is the Lord's chastening hand. Nevertheless, it could be. It could be. And in Jonah's case, it was. Proverbs 3 verse 11 says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. And that is repeated, it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. The Lord does chastise us. And the backslider might hate to admit that the Lord is dealing with him. But in Jonah's case, he faced up to his sin. He realized that he was in the wrong. And he bowed in submission to God's chastening hand. So much so that he asked the men to throw him overboard. Now as well as the request of the sailors and the reply of the saint... As we come down through this chapter, I want you to see the recognition of the sovereign. This is wonderful. Jonah chapter 1 from verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring it, that's the ship, to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. No matter how hard they tried to bring that vessel to the shore themselves, they couldn't do it. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. Here's the recognition of the sovereign, recognition of the Lord God by these men. They realize their own helplessness. Verse 13 illustrates that. They could not get the ship to shore. No matter what they tried, they couldn't do it. So they had to come to that place where they realized their own helplessness. They also had to come to realize the hopelessness of their false gods. Because in verse 5, when the mariners were afraid, they cried every man unto his God. But they never got any answer to their prayers. Their false gods didn't do them any good. And so what did they do? Well, verse 14 records that they cried out to Jehovah. Now think about this in verse 14 and the import of what's written there. These are heathen men. These are men who, according to verse 5, had false gods, each of which they prayed to. But now it says, wherefore they cried unto the Lord. And in your authorized version, as I've often told you, when you get the word Lord or God in small capitals, in the uppercase, in the original, it's always Jehovah. The God of Israel. They cried unto Jehovah. They cried unto the Lord. The true God. The creator. The one that Jonah talked about in verse 9. I fear Jehovah 
the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. I don't serve idols. I don't pray to false gods like you men. I fear the Lord. Now, whether the Lord used that to speak to them, I don't know. But some way, somehow, God worked in these men's hearts so that they began to pray unto the true God, unto the Lord. It's amazing this. But something else that's amazing is the great feature of their prayer is their ready acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. These men learned quickly. They not only realized that God was the Lord, but they said at the end of verse 14, For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. That's better theology than some men who stand in pulpits. There's some men who think that puny man can resist the will of God. Especially when it comes to the matter of salvation. That they can exercise the power of their free will against a sovereign God. But these men had learned that the Lord has done as it has pleased Him. They learned quickly, didn't they? That God is a sovereign. That He rules and He reigns over the affairs of men. He does as He pleases. These men realize that the Lord controls the weather. The Lord controls the weather. They're acknowledging here that it's the Lord who had sent the storm. It's the Lord who had made the tempest. It's because of the Lord and His work in the elements that they were in the situation that they were in. We've got foolish people today thinking that men are in control of the weather. And that's where all this nonsense, and that's what it is, absolute nonsense about global warming or climate change. doesn't suit sometimes to say global warming because it might be very cold, so you have to say climate change. It's all caused by men. It's because of Freon in your refrigerator or in your car air conditioning system. It's because of the deodorants that you spray into the air. What utter nonsense. But we've got people with, I think they have brains anyway, who actually believe this. And they're rabid about it. They're radical about it. Including politicians who want to change the entire face of our tax system to accommodate this nonsense. They want us all to go about in electric cars and stop for 20 or 25 minutes on a journey every 200 miles to charge up and put solar panels all around the place instead of having proper electricity pumped into wherever it is that you live or work. Oh, you're one of these flat earthers. No, the earth is not flat. The Bible says it is he that sitteth in the circle of the earth. I know the earth is not flat. The earth is round. The Bible says it. The Bible also says that while the earth remaineth, there's going to be seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat. Those things will not cease. 
But foolish people want to think that they're in control. Puny little man on the face of the earth is going to stop Niagara Falls with a teaspoon. That's what it's equivalent to. Tsunamis, earthquakes, typhoons, hurricanes, tornadoes such as the one that just moved through Iowa yesterday and killed a bunch of people. We start doing this, that and the other thing, that'll all change, that'll all stop. Really? Listen, God is in control. The Lord is in control of the weather. He's in control of the elements of the sea. And it was recognized by these heathen men. And you know, before a person ever gets saved, and when they get saved... There's a recognition of the sovereign, the one who rules and who reigns. He's not just Jesus, and he's not just Jesus Christ, but he's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the sovereign at whose feet we bow in reverence and humility. That's what these sailors got. A reverence for God. There was a recognition of the sovereign. You know, that's a lot more than some so-called converts have today. A reverence for God. really bothers me the way some people try to pray to the Lord. I don't mean in proper evangelical circles, but others. They, they come to the Lord as if He was an equal. As if he was their buddy. They talk about the man upstairs. I hate that expression. Or the big man in the sky. And whatever silly description they want to give. They bring God down to man's level. Whereas the scripture speaks of him as the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. When I read in Isaiah chapter 6 about the vision that Isaiah had of the Lord high and lifted up. He saw those seraphs that were standing beside the throne. They had six wings. And with two of their wings, they covered their faces. Why did they cover their faces? In reverence for Almighty God. I know how we need to keep in mind the Lordship of Christ. When we pray, it's not just another mere mortal that we're approaching. It is the holy God of heaven. People might ask the question, Brother, do you think that these sailors got saved? Yes, I do. 100%. Well, how do you know that? Because of what they said here. The Bible says, verse 14, that they cried unto the Lord. We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. And then they took up Jonah, they put him into the sea. And then it says in verse 16, significantly, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. That's enough for me. These men were converted. Just like Jonah said in verse number 9, I fear the Lord. Verse number 14 tells us, or sorry, verse 16, that these men feared the Lord exceedingly. They were saved. 
What a wonderful thing. Now that doesn't mean that we go off and do something in disobedience to God so that people will get saved. That's not what the Bible's teaching here. It's not saying, well, it's a good thing what Jonah did because if Jonah hadn't disobeyed the Lord, he wouldn't have come across those men in the ship and those men wouldn't have got saved. That's how some people will argue. But of course, salvation is of the Lord. If it hadn't happened in those circumstances, the Lord would have saved those men in some other circumstance. It doesn't excuse the disobedience of Jonah. But nevertheless, it shows us that the Lord is in control and that the Lord overrules. Even the wrath of men is made to praise him. And the remainder of wrath he will restrain. These sailors got converted. And their salvation actually pictures that of every sinner. I believe that. How so? Well, each person who is ever saved has got to come to realize his own goodness and his own religion cannot save him. That's what happened to these men. They became disabused of their false religion. You don't find them in verse 14 praying every man to his God anymore. Small g. They're praying to the Lord. They found out that their gods were but idols. But the God of heaven was the creator of the sea and the dry land as Moses or or as, as Jonah put it. They recognized who God was. They recognized they couldn't save themselves. They recognized that they had to cry out to God for salvation. And that's the way it is with every person who is truly saved. The sinner realizes he can't do anything to save himself. He recognizes who God is. And he will cry out to God for salvation. And he will furthermore come to the Lord on the basis of sacrifice. And this is what we find in verse 16 they offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Remember, this is the Old Testament era. This is the time when sacrifices would be offered. That spoke of the Christ who was yet to come. These sacrifices were not atoning in themselves, but they were the types of which Christ is the anti-type. So they're trusting in the blood, these men. They're coming the way of sacrifice. They're trusting in the way of the substitute. And you will note too that when they were saved, they dedicated their lives to God. This is wonderful. Verse 16 says, and they made vows. They made vows. They made promises to the Lord. When you make vows to God, he will hold you to your word. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 teaches us that. When you make a vow unto the Lord, defer not to pay it. But also you'll note that in chapter 2 verse 9, Jonah said, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay thee that I have vowed. Now in chapter 1, I want you to note that there are three great fears identified. Three great fears. In verse number 5, the mariners were afraid. There's a fear of death. Literally, they were afraid they were going to die in that storm. In verse 10, there is mention of another fear. Then were the men exceedingly afraid. I think this was a fear of damnation. 
They were afraid of what the Lord would do to them because Jonah had just introduced the subject of the Lord, the God of heaven. But then in verse 16, there is a fear of deity when the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And in the first two cases, it was a carnal and natural fear. But this, in verse 16, is not a fear in the sense of being afraid of God, but a reverence and an awe and a respect. God has not given us the spirit of bondage again to fear, but he's given us the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That's what was happening here. There was a reverential respect for the Lord, which is found in all those who get saved. We see in verse 9 that, once again, Jonah identifies the Lord as the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. That's the same Lord that these men feared. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 33 and verse number 18 has this to say. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Do we fear the Lord? In the sense that we reverence him, we have awe for him. We're speaking here about this recognition of the sovereign and It shows us once more that even sinful actions like Jonah's flight from God are overruled by the Lord for his glory. Yes, the sailors came to know the Lord through Jonah's message. But while sin, even Jonah's sin, has to be condemned, God does often overrule that sin to the working out of his own sovereign plan. And so it was here. It was in God's purpose that these sailors who were on their way to Tarshish should find the Lord on that journey. And so something wonderful came out of this. Jonah was sent to reach heathen people eventually in Nineveh. But before he ever got there, the Lord used him. Even in a time when he was disobeying the Lord, the Lord still used them to reach heathen people for the Lord. What Jonah did in chapter 1 was overruled by the plan of the Lord. I've been reading again recently about the life of Joseph. What a beautiful story it is. I don't know about you, but every time I get to that part where his brothers come to see him, And he sees Benjamin, as we would say in my country, his wee brother. Hasn't seen him for a long time. The Bible tells us of Joseph that he was so overcome by emotion, he had to get out of there. He simply had to get out of there and had to find a place where he could cry his eyes out. And then he could come back after he'd washed his face and pretend like nothing was wrong. It's a beautiful story. 
But I was reading the other day again in chapter 50. A verse really that encapsulates the whole message of the book of Genesis. Which is the word that Joseph spoke to his brothers after their father's death. Genesis 50 verse 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And how often is that the case? Something that's meant for evil. Something that's done that we would think is such a negative thing. God overrules it. For the benefit of people's hearts and lives and for his own glory. And he did that in the book of Jonah. We're going to return to Jonah obviously. And I trust that the Lord will bless our meditations upon his word.